It's the 5th of September in the year of our salvation, 2009. And this is Father John Zolzorf with another podcast. Welcome as our guest today, a frequent guest in these podcasts, St. Pope Leo the Great, Leo I, who died in 461 A.D. I should say A.D. 461, shouldn't I? It's Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, 461. And yeah, start this out right. We're going to hear some of a sermon that he gave on the Beatitudes, Sermon 95. And uh, then I'm going to rant for a while about the sacred and profane and reparation. For the last few days in the Church's Liturgy of the Hours, Holy Church has presented readings from Sermon 95 of St. Pope Leo I, Leo the Great. He was a pope in very dangerous times. The 5th century in Italy was horribly weakened by the collapse of the Roman Empire, and secular authority had devolved in large extent to Leo, and invasions were threatening the peace of the peninsula and the life of the church. I'm sure you remember the little episode with Attila the Hun. Uh, Leo is also well known for building up the authority of the Roman bishop as the successor of Peter. And in his letters, you can read how he worked with bishops uh, far and wide in resolving, for example, problems in their own dioceses. Uh, Leo would intervene in very conclusive ways. Uh, he also intervened in a very conclusive way in an ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon, through a letter now called, just sometimes called, the Tome, in which uh, Leo clarified what Christians believe about the person of Christ, namely that in Christ, uh, who is a divine person, there are two perfect natures, a divine nature and a human nature, each perfect and distinct from each other, but in perfect harmony with each other, the one not diminishing the other or becoming confused with the other. And this teaching, this very clear Christology, uh, helped to pave the way to resolving some of the Christological controversies in the 5th century. Now, Leo, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, uh, writers, preachers, who comes up in the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, is very famous for his splendid Latin. And when I read him in the office, I always read him out loud uh, because he's just a delight to the ear. 
His style is very classical, very periodic. That is to say, he writes with longer sentences, with lots of clauses and rhetorical flourishes and uh, very fine rhythms that he can obtain, for example, the ends of sentences and uh, and clauses. They're called clausulae, little closures, which uh, have wonderful rhythmical metric uh, elements. They sound wonderful. It's just a delight to hear Leo. Now, Leo um, has a reputation for being pretty tough, um, even authoritarian as Bishop of Rome, and uh, sometimes kind of political. But uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that in most of his sermons, Leo is constantly talking to his flock in Rome about care for the poor. Leo is very um, solicitous about the poor of Rome. It may be that because of his years spent as deacon to Pope Sixtus, uh, his immediate predecessor, uh, he got a kind of a hands-on experience. Remember that in those days, deacons were concerned very much with the temporal goods of the church, the material goods, and therefore corporal works of mercy and working among the, the poor. And so Pope Leo's sermons, especially his sermons during the fast times, were always concerned with the poor. And there were a lot more fast times in those days than now. And in his sermons, you can hear what Leo thinks about uh, fasting and, and, the, and the poor, how, how to make this all very concrete and not sort of like a dreamy, you know, period. It has to be very concrete. People were not simply to save, save up the money that they didn't spend on food. They were to take that same amount of money and give it to the poor. It was a direct thing. It was very concrete, very material. And so uh, Leo's sermons are filled with concern for the poor. And he, um, you can hear that, that interest in the poor also thread its way through this particular sermon, Sermon 95, in which Leo talks about the Beatitudes. Now you remember the Beatitudes. Christ gave us these Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes, on, during the Sermon on the Mount which is recorded in Matthew 5 and in a slightly different version in Luke 6. But the Beatitudes are all about the kingdom of heaven and who is to be associated with the kingdom of heaven. And in a sense, they seem to be uh, the Lord's teaching uh, militating against you know, worldly prejudices and ruts that we can get in. He's, he's overturning, you know, a merely worldly view of looking at things, setting things, shall we say, the worldly view on its ear. Now, you probably remember these. Uh, you've heard them, you know, many times in church. You may have even memorized them at one point in your catechism. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. You know, sometimes they say, inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes have, uh, of course, been a source of a very deep reflection for the greatest spiritual writers of the church throughout all of history. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I believe all, pretty much all the fathers talk about the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes at one point or another, all the important fathers. And uh, in the medieval period, I remember the medieval period you know, was not the Dark Ages, right? It was a magnificent renaissance, uh, in some ways even more splendid than the what we call the renaissance that followed. But I digress. In the medieval period, these great systematizing thinkers such as Thomas Aquinas uh, would, in his reflection on the Beatitudes, uh, line them up, for example, with corresponding virtues. And uh, you would imagine that the mendicant orders, the Dominicans, and the Franciscans would be very interested in all of these beatitudes uh, for obvious reasons. And so they too reflected on them. Uh, the beatitudes uh, are so important in the history of Western thought, in the history of Western literature. Uh, there are constant references to them, constant cultural references you know, for peacemaker, to peacemakers, for example, uh, we, we hear uh, references to the Beatitudes all the time. And uh, the Beatitudes uh, are even the uh, subject of a little bit of clerical humor. For example, in English, you know, the, some people might, you know, desire to make up new Beatitudes. Uh, one I remember from someone who was a teacher who probably had prob problems with students along the way, uh, quipped one day, blessed are they who sit on tacks, or they shall rise again. Anyway, the, that that poetic structure of the Beatitudes um, captures our imagination right away. And uh, people will reflect on it and sometimes even, you know, play with it a little bit. Uh, well, anyway, you get the drift. Now, the, what we're going to hear now is from Sermon 95 of Leo the Great, as I was talking about earlier. We don't know the date of this sermon. At the beginning of the sermon, Leo reminds his listeners uh, that the Lord didn't just heal people physically. He also gave them instruction for interior healing, for the good of their souls. And he goes on to talk about happy poverty. Happy poverty, suggesting that the happiness that Christ is teaching about, remember when you hear that word blessed, or beati, a beatus, is not just someone who's blessed, but there's also a happiness to it. You see the happiness component. Of course, we're talking about a true happiness, not the passing happiness of this world. We're talking about the happiness that can be obtained in heaven, and it's foreshadowing here. So we talk about happiness, or blessed are they, happy they, who do X, Y, Z. Um, what uh, the happiness that Christ is teaching about uh, according to Leo, is more easily obtained by the poor because they are more acquainted with the key, which is humility. They're humble. But Leo is also very careful to say that the rich can certainly also find the same humble spirit, and they do so through works of kindness and the relieving of suffering. Uh, he, he says, and here I quote from Leo, to every race and level of mankind, it is given to be a partaker of this virtue, humility, uh, 
for people can be equal in purpose and unequal in property. It does not matter how much they are different in earthly possessions when people are known to be equal in spiritual goods. That poverty is not blessed, which is obsessed by love of temporal things, nor longs to be enriched in the resources of the world, but strives to grow rich in heavenly goods. I think you probably uh, have met people who are poor and happy, and those who are poor but eaten with bitterness. It all has to do with our relationship with the earthly realm and where we really find, where we really place our happiness. And Leo, of course, is suggesting that relieving suffering, doing things for others in humility is real key to how we deal with our earthly possessions. Of course, you can see how this would fit in with Leo's program for relieving the suffering of the poor in Rome. Now, uh, what I'm going to read for you is some of Leo's Latin. But before we hear the Latin, I want you to hear some English. Now, in the Liturgy of the Hours, they have some little excerpts cut together from paragraphs four to six of this sermon. I'm going to read a little bit more of that. I'm going to read um, the complete paragraphs, four to six, and then slightly into seven, just so that we can have a, a nice block and you can get a little better sense of what Leo is talking about with this happy poverty. He strikes right out talking in the section you're going to hear right about happy poverty right away. He's talking about the third beatitude, blessed are they who mourn. And uh, keep your ear tuned to what he is saying about them. These are not people who share in worldly happiness. They have a different um, way of being comforted. Uh, keep uh, Tune your ears also to what Leo says about consecrated tears, what a beautiful image, and weeping for those who do evil. Uh, he goes on looking at the other Beatitudes too in this little section, blessed are the meek, the gentle. And uh, he compares, this is wonderful, he compares uh, the possession of the earth, the inheritance of the earth, with the flesh of the saints. Keep your ears tuned to that. And uh, he goes on to look at uh, blessed are they, or happy they, who are who hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. He's talking about what is the true food and drink for the soul. And he makes a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, play with words on mercy and injustice. And, uh, well, look, without further digression for me, let's hear some Leo. We'll hear the English first to get the content into your ear, and then we'll hear some of the glorious Latin from Leo the First's Sermon 95, which is on the Beatitudes. <laughs> After the preaching of this very fruitful poverty, the Lord spoke again, saying, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. These mourners, dearly beloved, to whom eternal consolation is promised, do not share in the feelings of this world. Those laments which are poured out by the weeping of the whole human race do not make anyone blessed. The groans of the holy are of another kind. There is another cause of consecrated tears. Devout sorrow grieves at the sin of another or its own, not at what divine justice does. Religious sorrow grieves at what is committed by human iniquity, where the one doing the evil ought to be more wept for than the one suffering it. Their own malice directs the unjust to their penalty, but patience leads the just to glory. Then the Lord said, Blessed are the gentle, for they will possess the earth. It is to the gentle and the mild, the humble and the unassuming, and to those prepared to bear all injuries that the possession of the earth is promised. This must not be considered a small or contemptible inheritance, as if it were separated from the heavenly home, for these are the very ones who are understood to enter the kingdom of heaven. The earth, promised to the mild, to be given into the possession of the gentle, is the very flesh of the saints. This will be changed by a happy resurrection because of the merit of humility, and will be clothed in the glory of immortality. It will no longer be in any way contrary to the Spirit, and will have the harmony of perfect unity with the will of the soul. Then the exterior person will be the quiet and undisturbed possession of the interior. No obstacles of bodily weakness will hinder the mind intent on seeing God. It will no longer be necessary to say, a perishable body presses down the soul, and this tent of clay weighs down the mind, thinking about many things. The earth will no longer struggle against the one who dwells on it, nor dare anything in excess contrary to the command of its ruler. The gentle will possess that earth in eternal peace. Nothing will ever be diminished from their rights, because this corruptible nature will have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal nature put on immortality, so that the risk is transformed into reward, and the burden into a bounty. After this, the Lord added, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they will be satisfied. This is not bodily hunger, this thirst that seeks nothing earthly, but longs to be filled with the good of justice. When it is brought into the hidden place of all mysteries, it hopes to be filled with the Lord himself. Happy is the soul that wants this food, and burns for such a drink, which assuredly it would not be seeking if it had not already tasted something of its sweetness. When it hears the spirit of the prophet saying to it, Taste and see that the Lord is sweet, it has received a certain portion of heavenly sweetness, and is ardent in love 
of the purest delight. The soul then spurns all temporal things, and is inflamed to eat and drink justice with all its good will. It comprehends the truth of that first commandment which says, You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, and with all your strength, since to love God is nothing else than to love justice. Finally, as in that place the care of the neighbor is joined to the love of God, so here the virtue of mercy is united to the desire for justice, and it is said, Blessed are the merciful, for God will have mercy on them. Realize, O Christian, the dignity of your wisdom, and understand to what rewards you are called by the practice of such teaching. Mercy wants you to be merciful. Justice wants you to be just. In this way the Creator will appear in His own creature and the image of God expressed through the paths of imitation may shine in the mirror of the human heart. Post predicationem huius felicissime pubertatis ad didit dominus dicens, beati qui lugent, quoniam ipsi consolabuntur. Luctus hic dilectissimi, cui consolatio eterna promititur, non est cum huius mundi affectione communis, nec beatum quemquam paciunt ista lamenta que totius humani generis deplorazione funduntur. Alia ratio est sanctorum gemituum, alia beatarum causa lacrimarum. Religiosa tristitia aut alienum peccatum luget aut proprium. Nec de hoc dolet quod divina justitia agitur, sed de eo meret quod humana iniquitate comititur, ubi magis plangendus est faciens maligna quam patiens, quia in justum malitia sua demergit ad penam, justum autem tolerantia ducit ad gloriam. De inde ait dominus, beati mites, quodiam ipsi hereditate possidebunt terram, mitis atque mansuetis, humilibus ac modestis, et ad omnium injuriarum tolerantiam preparatis, possidenda terra promititur. Nec parva estimanda est hec aut vidis hereditas, tamquam a celesti habitatione discreta sit, cum regnum celorum non alii intelegantur intrare, terra ergo promissa mitibus, et in possessionem danda mansuetis, caro sanctorum est, que ob humilitatis meritum felici resurrectione mutabitur, et immortalitatis gloria vestietur in nulo iam spiritui futura contraria, et cum voluntate animi perfecte unitatis habitura consensum. Tunc enim exterior homo interiori somidi serit quieta et intermerata possessio, 
Tung mens videndo deo intenta nudis corporee infirmitatis impeditur obstacodis. Nec iam dici necesse erit, corpus quod corrumpitur ad gravat animam, et terrena inhabitatio deprimit sensum multa cogitantem, quoniam habitatori suo non reclutabitur terra, nec immoderatum aliquid contra imperium sui rectoris saudebit. Possidebundeni mila mites pace perpetua, et nihilum quam de eorum iure minuetur, cum corruptibile hoc induerit incorruptionem, et mortale hoc induerit immortalitatem, ut periculum vertatur in premium, et quod fuit oneri, sit onori. Postec Dominus addit et dicit, Beati qui esuriunt et sitziunt justitiam, coniam ipse saturapuntur. Nihil hec esuritio corporium, nihil expetit sitis ista terenum, sed justitiae bono desiderat saturari, et in omnium occultorum introducta secretum, ipso domino optat impleri. Felix mens quae hunc concupiscit cibum, et ad talem estuat potum, quem utique non expeteret, si nihil de eius suavitaticus tasset. Audiens autum, dicentem sibi propheticum spiritum, gustate videte quoniam suavisus dominus, accepit quam dam superne dulcedidis portionem, et in amorem castissime voluptatis exarsit ut spritis omnibus temporalibus, adedendam bibendam quae justitiam, toto accenderetur affectu, et ilius primi mandati apprehenderet veritatem dicentes, diliges dominum deum tuum ex toto corde tuo, et ex tota mente tua, et ex tota virtute tua, quoniam nihil est aliu diligere deum quam amare justitiam. Denique sicur ilic dilectioni dei proximi cura subiungitur, ita et hic desiderio justitiae virtus misericordiae copulatur, et dicitur, Beati misericordes, coniam ipsorum miserebitur Deus. Agnosce Christiane, tue sapientiae dignitatem, et qualium disciplinarum artibus ad que premia voceris intelige, Misericordiam te misericordia, justum vult esse justitia, ut in creatura sua creator appareat, et in speculo cordis humani, per linea simitationis expressa dei imago resplendeat. That was St. Pope 
Leo the Great, Leo I, who died in 461. We've heard some of his Sermon 95 on the Beatitudes. And I'd like to come back to a point Leo made about praying for those who do evil. Now, we see evil around us every day. And some of this is a very worldly sort of evil um, stemming from the usual things. Uh, three of the great you know, enemies of our soul are the world and the flesh and the devil, right? So some evil really stems from the world and some of it stems from within us. You know, the flesh, some of it is diabolical. But very often these days we see evil focused on the sacred, evil things done to things that are sacred. And in this last category, this evil focused on the sacred is, I think, worthy of a little consideration here. I think we need a renewal of, of a sense of the sacred and a recognition of evil done to sacred things or sacred places or sacred people. You know, I think we can lose sight of the difference between these two different realms, the sacred and the profane, or the temporal. By profane, of course, I don't mean obscene, although very often evil uh, does have an obscene category because it's a, a fundamental violation of of who we are as images of God, right? Now, what I'm talking about here is the sacred realm, Things are taken out of the worldly sphere and given over to exclusive dedication to God. Remember that the prince has his realm. The Lord says, you know, that the devil really is the prince of this world. And the devil doesn't have anything on him, right? The world has its prince. All the things that are in it are to a certain extent, under his domination, but they can be snatched away from the enemy of the soul, the prince of this world. When a priest or bishop blesses or consecrates a thing or a person, they are removed from the worldly realm, from the clutches of the, the enemy, and they become part of the sacred sphere with God as Lord and King. And there can be sacred things, sacred places, sacred persons. And to harm these things or people is not just a sin against a person or a crime against property. It's also the sin of sacrilege. Now, say, for example, if a person were to harm a chalice for mass or... Um, go into a church and do terrible things there. Or maybe uh, walk up to a consecrated person like a priest or bishop or a, or a, or a sister, a nun, and you know, bust them in the chops. That would not just be harm to property held by the, the church or held by a person. And it wouldn't be just harm to a person like you know, assault, the crime. It's also sacrilege. Now, if you go up and, you know, bust someone in the chops, just, you know, 
Joe Bag of Donuts and the, and the Chops. It's a sin, probably. Huh? But um, if, you, if you bust a priest in the chops, it's not just a sin because you've harmed a person. It's also sacrilege because you've done it to a sacred person, someone who is uh, consecrated, a consecrated person. You have harmed a sacred person. It's a separate sin. You can never do anything to harm the sacred character of you know a person or a place or a thing that's been set aside like that. And for example, were you then to, I'm sure, be you know right away you know, feeling very guilty about what you did, want to go to confession, you would have to confess not just the sin of harming the chalice or spray painting the inside of the church or you know you know hitting father in the in the teeth with a baseball bat. You would be also you'd also have to um, confess the sin of sacrilege, not just that you harmed a person, but you did it to a sacred person or thing or whatever. You know, these, you know, think, consider for a moment that a building such as a church, church isn't just a building. It's a sacred building. Its walls are washed with holy water and then anointed with chrism. And then the building is given a name you know, this naming thing is very important too, isn't it? For example, a bell in the old ritual, the old Roman ritual for blessing a bell, you would consecrate a bell. You would wash it with holy water and then anoint it with chrism and then you would give it a name. Because a bell, like it speaks, it's almost like a living thing. It speaks with a voice and so it has a name. Uh, in preparation for the sacrament of baptism, uh, you would use uh, holy water, blessed for the purpose, and the priest would exercise the holy water, like drive the devil out of it. Remember, it belongs to the prince of this world before it's ripped from his grasp and taken over into the realm of the sacred. And you would use blessed salt in the blessing of holy water, and that salt has been exercised and blessed, and then the water is exercised and blessed. Things are taken away from the temporal, from the profane sphere, and handed over into the realm of the sacred. We have to, as Catholics, reclaim a sense of the sacred, especially about our churches and about our music and about our manner of prayer. You see, if you lose a sense of the sacred, then you lose a sense of how to pray in a sacred way. You wind up you know, conforming yourself to the wisdom of this world rather than being renewed in your mind in a sacred way. Instead of, instead of making prayer something very different from what is done in the world, it starts becoming kind of like everything else that you hear. The same thing with music, the same thing with our architecture, the same thing with our vestments and style of prayer and our even the language that's used. I mean, how long have we suffered with this dreadful translation. See, the new translation in English that is coming up is going to have a very different style from the way that we speak on a day-to-day -day basis, and that will help us reclaim a sense of the sacred in our prayer. Everything that we do in church, everything that we do in the liturgy should bring us into an encounter with the realm of mystery, into an encounter with the sacred, not just the, the normal, usual, everyday things that we always see. It should be completely different. And that sense of the sacred should also lead us to 
want to do reparation for the harm done to sacred things. Now, acts of reparation were once upon a time fairly common in the life of the church. Uh, There were societies, for example, set up, and they still exist, I think, like the Holy Name Society that was set up in part to do reparation for sacrilegious abuse of the Holy Name of Jesus. Think about also the number of people who receive Holy Communion in a sacrilegious way or do things to the Eucharist that are evil. And this isn't just abuse of, of a sacred thing. It's abuse of the sacred thing in our midst. This isn't just something dedicated to God. It is God himself. And sacrilegious Holy Communion is condemned in the very strongest terms by no less than Paul the Apostle, who speaks of eating and drinking one's own damnation, one's own condemnation. And, you know, in talking about this, I don't want to, you know, try to make, you know, try to get people to be like super scrupulous or be absolutely terrified of going to Holy Communion. We have to be reasonable about, uh, about our state. If we are reasonably sure that we're in the state of grace, that is to say, you are, you know that you're not in the state of sin or, you know, you're reasonably sure that you're in the state of grace. You should, you know, feel free to approach Holy Communion. But if you know that you're in the state of sin, if you know that you're in the state of mortal sin, that you're not in the state of grace, then you must not receive Holy Communion. You should seek first to make a good, um, a good confession first, because certainly you have the option of making a perfect act of contrition you know, be in that moment. But you know, how many of us are really able to do that? I think some of us are. People who are, you know, deeply disciplined in the spiritual life certainly are. But I think I would suspect myself, you know, a little bit. I think I'd rather, you know, go to confession first rather than presume, you know, very much. Yeah, I, it all depends on the person and the circumstances. So I don't want to say here that people should be, you know, terrified of Holy Communion. But I think what I do want to say is that you should be terribly uh, reverential and filled with awe at the momentous thing that you're going to do and not a- approach it with a, you know, with a soul that's stained with sin and when you're aware of it. So there's that kind of sacrilegious holy communion. But then there are people who are absolutely frivolous about these things. And there are people who do things to the Eucharist with evil intent. There are people who steal hosts out of churches. They break in and they steal. Matter of fact, in the news just this week, I heard down in Texas, I think it was at the uh, out of the chapel of a university in Texas, Texas A&M perhaps, where someone broke in and stole the tabernacle out of a church, out of the chapel. Well, there are people who, especially those who are in the service of the enemy, worshipers of the devil who will break into churches and steal hosts for their unspeakably uh, horrible uh, sacrilegious rites. There are people who will take, uh, go up to Holy Communion, receive communion in the hand, and then walk out of the church with hosts and sell hosts to people who want to do these things. 
there are people who just, you know, not having any idea what they're doing or maybe just, you know, not liking the taste of, of a communion wafer or something like that will throw them on the ground or leave them in the pew or stick them in a missalette or, you know, whatever, put them in their pocket or carry them away. There are, there are people who pour the precious blood, if it's been consecrated in too large quantities, down the sink in the sacristy. And some of them, some of those people know that it's wrong to do so. And if you know that it's wrong to do so, and you do it anyway, the church's law says that you incur automatically, latte sententiae, an excommunication, the censure of which is reserved to the Holy See. I mean, you know, Father in the confessional, not even your local bishop can, can lift that, the censure of that. There are indeed profanations of sacred things. Things that you see in the media, but things that happen also in this more direct way uh, in churches, uh, both the physical building and in churches, in people's hearts. And then there are things that are done to that which is most sacred of all, uh, the Eucharist. And we need to to recover a sense of what is sacred and therefore a desire to do reparation for sacrilegious communions or abuse of sacred things. You know, look, if, if we really believe in all this stuff the church teaches about the Eucharist and about our immortal souls and that we are images of God and therefore at the pinnacle of material creation... If we really believe that God himself died in the cross for us, images of God at the pinnacle of creation, gave us all these sacred things, then can we imagine for a moment that a sacrilegious Holy Communion or Mass said in an irreverent way, filled with abuses or other kinds of sacrilegious that are, that are performed, if, can we imagine that they don't create a corrosive effect in the very fabric of society on the human race as a whole? The way we celebrate Holy Mass affects the world. How we treat the Eucharist, how we receive Holy Communion has not just an effect on, our, our, on ourselves, but also on the whole world. Not just because people can see it, you know, maybe our good example or bad example. I think it actually has an effect on the whole world even if people don't see it. And so, as good Catholics who love our neighbor, we should be very diligent in our own approach to, the sacred, to sacred things and places and persons, and also be willing to do reparation for abuses of the sacred. And once again, I don't mean, you know, be overly you know, scrupulous or terrified about approaching Holy Communion. I mean, be reasonable about these things. But try to be in the state of grace as much as possible all the time. Use the sacraments. Use the sacrament of penance. Go to confession, the sacrament of reconciliation. And keep your eyes open for moments when you might just very, very privately be able to do reparation for abuses to the sacred, especially the abuses of the Eucharist. 
perhaps by spending time before the Blessed Sacrament, doing an hour of prayer and reparation. This would be of enormous use, I think, to yourself in your spiritual life, uh, to your neighbor, and to the whole world. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Give me that old-time religion. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. I thought I might be able to get uh, to another installation of the Don Camillo stories today, but I just, you know, started rambling. And uh, this is what happens when I just, you know, go on a rant, I guess. Uh, maybe next time I'll get to some Don Camillo. In the meantime, uh, do visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com, whiskey, delta, tango, papa, romeo, sierra.com. That's a little hard to remember. You might try fatherzonline.com. That's F-A-T-H-E-R-Z, spell it out. Dot com. Father Z Online. And uh, tell your friends about it. Let them know that these podcasts are available. You can subscri- subscribe on iTunes if you want to, and you can download them uh, right through the blog, right on the page. And if you would be so kind, I would be quite grateful if you would pray for me as I pray for you. <laughs>